Carson James did not grow up owning his own horse. He wanted to learn more about horsemanship and got some on-the-job training on the ranches from Oregon to Montana to Arizona. It was there he got the knowledge of some of the least known but most experienced horse trainers there are. In the deepest corners of the biggest deserts in the most secluded places, there are some guys that could give, myself included, any any well-known trainer or clinician a run for his money and like he he might only go to town once every two months and live at a ranch that's 60 miles from a paved road they're they're really well hidden but it's like they're out there you, you just got to know where to go to find them they have some horses that could give all these performance horses a good run for their money you know hi i'm john Hare. welcome to the woe podcast about horses you found the safe place to be horse crazy. Thanks to all the new listeners joining the show. Just a quick note, we are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can find us by looking for Woe Podcast. You can sign up for our weekly email at woepodcast.com where I give you a tip, something I've learned that has really helped my horsemanship. Now let's get to it. On today's show, we talk to horseman and clinician Carson James. Carson has developed a good reputation for training horses and running clinics. He's got some great knowledge about horses and we wanted to get a little. He's headquartered in North Florida, so sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Carson James. And good morning, Carson. How are you doing this morning? Hey, good, good. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us on the Woe Podcast. Oh, you bet. Just in case people may not know too much about your background, uh, you're a fairly young trainer. How did you get involved with horses? Oh, it's kind of the kind of the shorter, well, semi-shorter version of it would be uh, when I was when I was real little. My parents worked on ranches uh, in Montana, and they got to know some people and made some really good friends up there that still do that today. Uh, so when I was about six, my dad left his ranch job and we lived on the road in an RV for about 15 years or so. But then when, about the time I turned 16, I kind of just started to develop my own interest in horses. And this was long after they had quit, uh, they had quit their cowboy jobs. But, uh, anyway, so I would start riding horses for people around here. Uh, locally here in North Florida, uh -huh. when I was still living with them, I started to really like it. So they said, well, Carson, if you really want to get good at training horses and learn how to start colts and all that, you need to go spend some time with Dale and Carla, which are a couple of people they used to cowboy with really good with horses. So I would spend my summers up in, uh, it was South central Montana in, uh, little outside of a little town called Red Lodge, but I would go there and work for Dale and Carla, start, start a bunch of colts with them. And then Dale's wife, Carla, she was big into cutting. So we got to work a lot of cows and all of that kind of stuff too. So it kind of started there. And then uh, a little later on about the time I was 20 or so. Yeah. Yeah. About, about the time I was 20, I kind of got itchy feet and wanted to leave Florida again. I would usually leave Florida every summer about the time it would start to get hot. <laughs> uh, 
I kind of wanted to see some different country and stuff. So uh, I went, I went to work on a big ranch in Oregon and uh, they still did things kind of the old fashioned way. Like you would get on a horse at, at daylight and be on him until sometimes dark or even later than that. And they would, it was, the ranch was just over a million acres all put together. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was massive. And is that where and, you started kind of learning the vaquero type background of, of your horsemanship? Yes, sir. Yeah. For the most part, even the, it's, it's kind of funny how it's depending on what region you're in. There's generally speaking, there's certain types of methods and ways of doing things so like in montana it's kind of a mixture between vacuro horsemanship and kind of like what a texas cowboy would be they call that kind of cowboy a half breed uh because he's uh-huh. not strictly vacuro but he's not a texas cow puncher either it's a mixture so my parents uh and dylan carla they used a lot of the same gear that i use now with my stuff, so we kind of kind of started there but yeah then when i got over there to oregon it was it was a lot more uh straight traditional buckaroo or vaquero type riding and were you kind of drawn to that vaquero horsemanship style yes sir at at first before i really kind of caught on to what it was about i was just really into horsemanship you know and i didn't really have my own style or anything like that but then from being on those ranches and learning about learning to further my horsemanship, uh, it just really, it just really fit the kind of things that I like for my horses to do and how I like them to be. And in Vacuro style horsemanship, you take, you take a lot more time than other disciplines, except for dressage, maybe to build a finished product. You spend lots of hours slowly building the horse to a really high level over a four or five year period versus just trying to get it all done right here, right now, you know. And on those big ranches that you were working on, is that important? I mean, do they have time to to let you do, you know, take that much time with the horse? Yes, sir. It's it's kind of neat how it how it goes together. Like so you would get on you would get on your horse and like sometimes we would have to trot for 12 or 15 miles before we even got to the cows and then we still had to gather them all up and then get them moving out and get them and then we had to go another 10 miles with 300 cows to get them into the next pasture or to uh good water or whatever so Granted, you couldn't actually stop and do training sessions per se, but you could slip in just a whole bunch of little things all day long. So it's kind of like you do, you do a bunch of little things sooner instead of a bunch of big things later, you know? Kind of fascinated. It almost sounds like you didn't own your own horse, that you were working for other people and you were using their horses. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. Uh, most most ranches, uh, if they're really big ones like that, and they have a crew that they hire to ride full time, the ranch will actually own what they call a cavy that can consist of anywhere from 30 to 200 saddle broke horses, 
and the ranch actually supplies you with uh, anywhere from four to eight horses. While you work there, those horses that you ride, it's called your string. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the reason they give you so many is because when you got on a horse in the morning, you, you would usually ride for about 30 miles and six or seven hours. So you had to have that many to keep rotating out. So they didn't get overworked, you know? Right. So you wouldn't, you, if you use that horse that day, then you would use a different horse the next day and give that guy a rest. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it sounds like, so you didn't really have kind of the, the typical horse history where, you know, you, 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 as a kid, you, you get a horse and you kind of fall in love with that one single horse and then kind of blossom from there. You, you weren't sure exactly what kind of horse you were getting on probably most mornings. Yeah. Yeah, man. There was some, I'm having flashbacks. There was some some really sketchy, some of those ranch horses, just some of the guys that come through there, they don't treat them very well. He might work at that place for a year and just about get that horse ruined. And then he leaves. And then a month later, good old Carson shows up and then that horse is handed off to you. And they're like, Oh yeah, by the way, uh, that horse kind of learned some bad habits from his last rider. <laughs> like the whole day, you know, your butt's clenched to the saddle and you're not wanting to let go of your rope coils in case he goes to bucking and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the most stressful part of working on a ranch in my opinion. <laughs> Can you tell us the story about one of those horses that you may have uh, learned a lot from? Oh man, I got I got quite a few of them. All right, so so this this is at a different this is at a ranch I was working at in Arizona, uh, and this was more recent. They assigned this horse to my string, a a really big old roan horse. They said, "Yeah, his name's Band Aid," and then I kind of looked at him and he said, "Yeah, we call him that because every." every guy that's ever had him in his string has went to the hospital, uh, because (laughs) of this horse. And I was like, Oh man, I'm a left-handed roper. When I rope, everything's backwards from everybody that had roped and used that horse up to me. We gathered 200, two or 300 pairs, which is a cow calf combination. And brought them into the corral there and we built our fires and then we started to brand. He did fine with me swinging the rope on his left side. It was when I went in and I roped one of the calves by his two back feet. And then I wrapped my rope around my saddle horn and I turned to leave the herd and drag him out towards the branding fire. That horse, he, he blew up pretty good. I think it was with the rope. I think it was when the rope that was stretched was kind of pushed up against his hip. Uh-huh. Uh, he had never felt that on on that particular side, and uh, and for some reason he kind of started bucking and he spun around really fast, and I couldn't get my rope undone from my saddle horn, oh, no. which which was weird because it was just wrapped and it got kind of locked down. And at this point I was kind of halfway off of him, kind of hanging onto his neck. And then he twisted around and kind of spun me up in that rope. And I was like, man, I'm about to die. And uh, <laughs> He's going to hang me. <laughs> yeah. That, that one turned out pretty good. But then like two weeks later I was using him again and there was an old down barbed wire fence 
and it was all laying on the ground, but there were some cows on the other side of it I needed to get to. And typically what you do is you just hit those fences at a log trot and their feet will, and you can trot over those without any problem. Well, the shoes on him were sticking out the back of his feet. His horseshoes were just a little bit too long. And he caught that wire just right to where it made a squeaking sound. He panicked and kind of flew backwards. And we were kind of on the side of a hill or like kind of a mountain. So we started running really fast and bucking down the side of this mountain. And, and I came off and my, I felt I came off on the right side of him and my left foot got hung up in the stirrup. Uh So it was kind of, it was kind of going across his, his backside I only got drugged for about 20 feet or so, but he, I was, my head was so close to his back feet. I could feel them really lightly grazing like the side wow. of my head and I could, I could hear them cutting through the wind. And, and then once again, I was like, man, I'm about to die. <laughs> my foot came loose and that all turned out. Okay. Except it kind of messed my knee up. And sure enough, I went to the hospital. So the horse kept his track. record. <laughs> Well, I can't imagine with all that adventure why you'd want to leave all that and then go into horse training as as a clinician. <laughs> Man, I'm just I'm one of those people like I I'll do something for a few months and then I'll be like, all right, well I've kind of been there, done that. Let me go, <laughs> let me go find the next thing. And and I get kind of like I really enjoy training horses, but I really enjoy cowboying too. But it's like after four or five months of kind of doing nothing but just trotting out through the desert, gathering your cows, branding them. And then, you know, every day it's kind of the exact same thing. I kind of start getting like, well, man, I would really like to work on getting one to lope in a nice circle or trying to get a really good stop on one, which you could do that on a ranch. But like you said, it's, it's kind of hard to find time to devote specifically to training so then i would leave a ranch and i would come back to florida either start colts or train horses for people right here where i live or i would go down south there's a reigning cow horse guy and i would go down south and um work for him starting his colts and doing performance horse type training and then i'd be here for you know, the winter. And then about the time it started to get hot, I'd say, well, man, I'm bored of just going in circles in an arena. I want to get out and do something. Nice. So, so I just keep jumping back to the fore. <laughs> but that's got to give you a pretty good foundation for building your horsemanship program. Oh yeah. Yeah. It really, it really helped with, uh, Oh, give me one second. My dad walked in. He told me to tell you about working for, uh, Jay, which is the reigning cow horse guy. And, uh, some other performance trainers. And that really, that really helped me a lot. I probably learned more in the first month of working for the rain and cow horse guy than I did the first five months on a big ranch. Is that because the training was just so concentrated? You had to get those horses to do something in a very short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's like, instead of going out and just trotting around and kind of getting your cows moved, which is just basically a lot of straight lines, uh, lots of trotting. That's pretty much it. You know, it's unless the cows are really fresh or wanting to run back to the last gate they came through or something, you can get cows moved and, and not have to have a really handy horse, uh, 
Now, granted, a good horse makes it a lot better, a lot easier of a day. At the when I was working in the arena tr- doing the training, you're you're constantly working on getting a better stop or getting them to do a specific maneuver better. You know, big difference. Now, when did you start developing your program where you're you started developing your, your DVDs and your style of training and the things that you're going to do for your clinics and such? When I first started riding, my parents gave me a book that was written by uh, a guy named Ray Hunt. His mentor was a guy named Tom Doritz, and Ray Hunt was the kind of the original clinician. He's the first one that started going around doing classes, teaching people how to improve themselves so their horses could get better and uh i really i read that book several times over and i really started kind of adapting his philosophy it's kind of where natural horsemanship came from so like uh the the term natural horsemanship was coined by pat pirelli and he was also mentored by the same one that mentored ray hunt which was tom dorrance and the whole idea behind that philosophy is there's never anything wrong with the horse. You work on yourself so the horse will become better on his own. You're never trying to make the horse do anything. You're trying to set up situations to where it's his idea to do what you want. It, it becomes his decision, the horse's decision. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're trying to you're just trying to fix it up and let it become the horse's idea to do what you had in mind because see a lot of people think that well a horse is stubborn or a horse wants to do his own thing so you have to make him submit to you and that's not actually true. I've never seen an animal that's more willing to comply and do what a human wants. The, th- the confusing part where people get confused is if the horse doesn't understand, it'll seem like he doesn't want to cooperate. But in truth, he's just doing the best thing that he knows to do for his given level of understanding. Right. right. Uh, yeah, do you still cowboy or are you a full-time clinician and trainer now? No, as of as of right now, I'm just a full time clinician. Uh, it was kind of neat though. We were doing a clinic in Oregon, and getting to it, we went right through, right by the ranch that I used to work at, the big million acre one. So, right. and it also, yeah, it also just so happened that their big ranch rodeo and horse fair was in town that weekend. So. I called the ranch manager and uh, we went out and parked our horse trailer and unloaded our horses at that ranch I used to work at and kind of hung out for a few days and went to the ro- the ranch rodeo there in town. And then I got, to, I got to use my horses and go out a couple days and help the crew gather and do some work around there. So that was kind of a neat deal, but that was the last time I really did any real cowboy type stuff and when you do a, a clinic and are you since you're training people now are your clinics different than others and and how are they different than people might see i've seen clips and stuff from other clinics but i've never i've never actually attended another clinic just because i'm i'm really careful about 
who I learn from and who I allow to influence my way of thinking and stuff as far as training horses. So I've never, I've never actually been to one. Now this is going to sound kind of obnoxious, but I don't mean for it to, but just for the sake of answering the question, um, what I get feedback from a lot of the people that attend mine is they say it's, they're really, uh, they're really easy to understand. They say they've been to several other clinics, but they've never, they've never been able to really understand why they're doing the things that they're doing and things like that as they do at mine. And they also, a lot of people also say that they really like how, um, it's really laid back. I usually tell jokes and stuff just because sometimes people get nervous. So I try to help everybody just kind of relax and have fun and take so the edge say, off. And stuff. yeah, yeah. That, so they say they really appreciate the sense of humor and the kind of the fun that, that goes along with it. So just from what people say, it kind of seems like those are kind of unique traits. What do you see most people, because I'm sure you, you deal with mostly recreational riders. What do you see yeah. as their, their biggest challenge with their horse ownership? It's, it's kind of a combination, but one thing I, I try to really help people get good at is being able to ride their horses on a loose rein and then be able to ask their horse when they ask their horse to do something, ask it in a meaningful way to where the horse feels their confidence level increase as it pertains to, you know, what they're asking their horse to do. And it's really neat to see, but when the rider kind of gets some confidence and some clarity over a five minute period, you'll see their horse's whole entire demeanor just change like instead of having a worried facial expression he'll lower his head and he'll his eye will get more relaxed right after the rider gets some confidence and some understanding you'll see the horse just kind of say oh man finally this is what i've been waiting for and that's a it's a really neat deal to see that it's what you call one of those aha moments yeah yeah that's right it's it's important i think because in my my horsemanship, I, building that horse's confidence, finding little things that he can do so that he's not always kind of getting beat up for doing something wrong, that really kind of progresses. It it takes him up a notch each time he figures something out. He's kind of he his confidence builds and he can go on to learn the next thing. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think the exact same thing. It's always. It's always the little things. A lot of people think that, you know, it's the big things that you do that make the big difference. It's not three or four big things. It's 500,000 itty bitty minuscule little things that come together to make really big differences. So the clinics are based on getting those little tries and getting the horse to maybe not even do the maneuver, maybe just get him to think about it a couple times, you know? Right, right. Is there one little small thing that people can start with that would make a big difference in their horse? A lot of, a lot of the times what I notice I catch myself trying to help people with is uh, to hang in there until you see, he doesn't have to do it exactly right, but 
hang in there until you see a change. So like, for example, a clinic we were doing about a year ago in Texas, there was a lady that had a horse and she said she had a really hard time getting him to lunge to the right. I said, well, okay, well, show me, show me what you're talking about. And so she would do everything, you know, it looked pretty good. It looked like her body language and all that was pretty good. She would, she would have her lead line in her right hand and she would hold her right arm out and the horse would be facing her. So she would want the horse to kind of turn away from her and go out to be on his circle and start trotting or walking to the right. So she would do that, and then he would just kind of stand there and face her. And then if she would raise up her her flag or kind of wave her other arm to try to push his front end out, he would just start backing up. So he would do that, and she would kind of go with him for, you know, five or six steps. And then she would just kind of back off. I told her, Hmm. I would say, well, if you just kind of hang in there and keep going, you know, I'd say, well, his feet are moving and you can kind of tell he's trying to figure you out. So just don't do any more and don't do any less and just kind of hang in there. And at some point that horse's something will happen. His ear will kind of look to the outside. His nose might tip or he might even reach out directly to his left with his front end, which would be not real far from him getting out there on a circle to where he can start going. So she did that and she, she walked around with him kind of sticking with him like that as he was backing up for maybe a minute and a half. And then finally that horse took one step with his front end. He kind of turned away from her and I said, Oh, that's it. Pause right there. And I walk up and pet him. And sure enough, the very next time she tried it, she only had to, go with him for three steps and then he turned and two minutes after that she could just stand still and hold up her arm and he would turn right away so i'll tell people you know once you once you reach for your horse to ask for something it's really critical that you hang in there until you see at least a change from what he's doing at that point that otherwise you're actually just training your horse to ignore it because you say horse says okay well i see him do this but then they just kind of put their arm back down and retreated so i guess that means nothing you know the horses learn from the release of pressure yeah yeah that's exactly right what was the most important thing that you learned about horses and who did you learn it from oh man that's let's it would, That's a loaded question, huh? Yeah, it would it would be a combination, but I would say the most influence has been well, I, I learned a lot of training type things like how the position they need to be in to have a good stop and all that. I learned a lot of that from where the performance guys, but then my way of thinking about getting them to that point of where they have the good stop and all of that was influenced by being around all those uh, buckaroos on those ranches in Oregon and stuff because their type of riding and their way of thinking as far as building a horse, it's heavily influenced. That, that whole era about 40 years ago when Ray Hunt went around doing clinicians and worked on ranches. He really 
started a movement to where nowadays just about any ranch you go to, they follow kind of that same philosophy that Ray Hunt started. So all the guys that I rode with and worked with, they all knew who Ray Hunt was, and some of them even knew him and had been to some of his clinics. It was just really helpful to be to, to be surrounded by that same type of thinking as far as, you know, don't force the horse to do it, make it his right. idea, be kind to him and all of that. So it was a mixture of being around those same type of people and then working for the performance guys. And the performance guys don't necessarily have that same philosophy. I mean, they don't, they don't abuse their horses or anything. I'm sure there's some that do none that I ever worked for did, but, but I was, I was able to kind of have a good enough mixture to where I could kind of combine their performance training along with the natural horsemanship, you know? Now you've got a website set up with carsonjames.com and there's a lot of great information people can find out about, not just about the products that you, you sell, but you've got a lot of really good information about your horsemanship philosophy and the tips that you do. And of course you, on Facebook, you're very active there. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, so the, about, about two years ago, well, my brother's always been really big into marketing. He's worked for a lot of companies that do internet marketing. And about two years ago, he said, Hey Carson, let's try this with your horse training stuff. Let's put it on the internet and see where it goes. And it really just kind of blew up pretty quickly. We just kind of kept working on building the website and, and getting it to where, you know, everybody would have easy access to all the blood, sweat and tears that it took me a long time and a lot of a lot of miles to gain, you know. And so, yeah, the website is uh, CarsonJames.com. And what it is, is it's a website with lots of these videos to where somebody could go on there and then watch the videos and if you have a specific problem you can go watch the videos that pertain to that specific problem or you can take a cool. course that we have set up to where you could take a horse that had never been haltered and get him started get the saddle on and put his first ride all and then take that same horse all the way up to advanced riding to like bridleless stops and all of that kind of stuff. And then uh, there's also a, a Facebook group to where anybody who's a member, they all are on that Facebook group, myself included. So members can post videos of their horses and then tag my name and it sends a flag to me. So then I can go in there and uh, visit with them about their horse and kind of evaluate how they're doing so far and things like that. And then there's a lot of free information too. I know I got I picked up on the uh, email newsletter I got yesterday was a, a desensitizing flow chart that I found fascinating. If you're if you're trying to desensitize your horse to something, it's got a, just a very simple step by step. If your horse does this, go this way. If your horse does that, go that way, and you can kind of kind of noodle through the problem just like that. Oh yeah. Yeah, we've I, I think we're even fixing to come out with a couple more like for stops and trailer loading or something. But but, yeah, people seem mm -hmm. to really like how they can just like just like you said, you know, well, if he's responding like this, then you need to respond like this, you know. 
And if he's not responding like if he's, if he's responding differently, then you go this way. Yeah, then yeah. Then you just you. you just follow the arrow that points to to your problem. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as we wind this thing down, I I would like to ask you if you could name a horseman who may not be you know well known across the country. He's not a Ray Hunt or a Clinton Anderson or Chris Cox or something, but He's a well-known horseman that you love, just love talking horses with. Oh man, there's I don't really I don't really know of any clinicians per se, but man, if you it's it's really a neat deal. But like in the deepest corners of the biggest deserts in the most secluded places, there are some guys that could give myself included any any well-known trainer or clinician a run for his money and like he he might only go to town once every two months and live at a ranch that's 60 miles from a paved road but i mean they are they're they're really well hidden but it's like they're out there you just gotta you just gotta know where to go to find them they have they have some horses that could they could give all these performance horses a good run for their money, you know. So those guys that you would sit around the campfire with when you were out on the on the ranches working. Yes, sir. There was one one guy that comes to one guy that comes to mind. He was the the boss of the Arizona outfit I worked for. So it was a wagon job, which means you take one of those big canvas teepees with you and you literally just live out in the desert for the whole season, which is about three or four months. And you, you just go with the cows, just, just like in the old days, you know, and that was a wagon job. Well, the guy that was in charge of the wagon, his name was Jake. And, um, me and him, we would, we would go out and, and ride and gather cows. And we would just talk all day long about, bridle horses and different saddle makers and what we found that seems to really fit good with horses and and that guy was he had some really really nice horses but just talking to him because of how he grew up you know which was in really big like a lot of seclusion really nice really friendly guy but like also really really quiet unless you could kind of strike up a conversation and get it going and uh just right. really really humble i mean people you know these guys they they don't a lot of them have never even been to a mall or in a big city you know but man they could they could answer some questions about horses you know and a, lo- a lot of people think that kind of cowboy and has gone by the wayside are they still doing stuff like that today yeah, that's that's what's so amazing. Like a uh, a lot of people, like you say, they don't even know that those kind of jobs actually still exist. These ranches will hire a crew, a full crew of guys to do nothing but tend to the cows, either move, keep them on good grass or brand them. It's kind of split up half and half between the week. But yeah, that that still exists. Uh, camp, cow camps still exist. One year uh, when I was in Oregon, they sent me up to a me and one other guy on the crew up to a cow camp, and it was 17 miles from ranch headquarters, back up in the mountains. And I mean, there was there was nothing around as far as you could see, 
and it was just a little wooden shack that sat kind of in a draw. We got our water from a creek that that camp was built on, and it was formed from snow melting off the mountains year-round. That's where we got our water, and we lived up in that. It didn't have any electricity. We lived up in that little shack for uh, four months, and every day we rode off into the mountains and would find find 300 cows and gather them and move them to the next pasture over, and it was uh, it was really neat. But, yeah, all of that stuff Man. still goes on. It's not as common, but if you know where to go, it's it's still very abundant. <laughs> That sounds like such a great adventure, you know, and being able to do stuff like that. You know, it sounds. I know it's a hell of a lot of work, but it also sounds like a, a heck of a lot of fun. And uh, in our world of computers and cell phones and being connected to everybody, I bet it's kind of nice to get out there and be away from and be 60 miles from the nearest paved road. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing to to see how there are still some places where it's just so massive you can you can still be that secluded i remember i remember one morning we got up and started to head out and we were on the side of this huge mountain and we came to this we came to this cliff and it was just a straight drop off of about 300 feet and we just stopped there for about 10 minutes stared out across the vastness and it was I mean, you could you could see literally 70 miles out across there and there was nothing. And it was just, you know, I've, I've had quite a few views like that. And it's just amazing. You know, it's not there's nothing like it. I bet. Well, this has been a lot of fun talking with you on the Woe podcast. And now I know you've got uh, Facebook fan groups all over the place. That's how I found you. The Carson James Fan Club in California emailed me and said, hey, you got to talk to this guy. If people want to find out more about your horsemanship and how to book a clinic, where can I, where can we send them? Oh, let's see. It's on the, the CarsonJames.com website. There's there's like a Great. there's like a drop down tab where you can click clinics and membership and all that info should be at carsonjames.com. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Carson. I hope someday maybe I get to uh, meet you, shake your hand, maybe even ride together. Oh yes, sir. That that would be a blast. I'll I'll be looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us on the show. All right, thank you, Mr. John. Well, that'll do it for this show. Thanks to Carson James for being on the show. Head over to CarsonJames.com and see what he has to offer. I think you'll find some good, entertaining horsemanship information there. I'll have all the links mentioned in this episode in the show notes at WoePodcast.com. Need more? Well, you can join our mailing list at WoePodcast.com. Every Friday, I'll send you a quick tip, something you can do to build a better relationship with your horse with just a few minutes practice. Need even more? Check out our other episodes. There are a bunch on wopodcast.com. You can also find a link to our YouTube channel about our life with horses, dogs, cats, cows, and travel. Some are helpful. Some you'll just shake your head. Subscribe to the Woe Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google, and you'll never miss an episode. Take us along when you ride or have chores to do. Woe Podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're going to continue the What I Wish I Knew Then series for a few weeks. What do you know now about horses that you wished you knew way back when? Do you have some special tip or a story about your horse? 
We set up a Google Voice number for you. Tell us your first name and where you live. Of course, we'd like to have your horse's name too. Here's the number. It's 661-368-5530. Your voice will be recorded and I'll throw your tip, trick, and tales to our hundreds of other horse owners who would love to hear it. You prefer to email? Send them to john at woepodcast.com. One more thing. The world of podcasts is trying to expand. Now, you know, HBO, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, they all cost money. But you know what's free? Podcasting. I know you knew that already, but many others don't. Spread the word. March is podcasting month. Find someone you care about, or even just the person standing next to you in line for a cup of coffee, and tell them about podcasting. Tell them about our podcast, or someone else's podcast. Tell them they are all free. Tell them where they are. Tell them they are awesome. Get them to try one. Find one you like? Let the world know by using the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks again for listening to the show and sharing this podcast with your friends and writing buddies. So until next time, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.